Well, we are wrapping up this series today. Um, we're going to be talking about um, what it means to be resolved. We've had a different uh, word every week. So we talked about the warning that there is definitely a cultural shift. Love to remind us that this cultural shift didn't happen just in the 60s, but it has been going on for a very, very long time uh, where the world and the church find themselves sometimes agreeing with one another, but it seems like right now tension is rising and uh, the, the, the situation between the culture and the church are definitely finding more things to disagree about. Um, I, can you feel it? Let's just, you know, I'm asking. You, you can sense this, right? Like, I'm not crazy. Um, we're all sensing. So what do we do? And then we came back and said, listen, it's not just about issuing a warning, but the Bible and church history, the, the biblical text, as well as uh, the 2,000 years since the Bible was written, gives us some very biblical responses to how we, uh, how we approach that warning. We talked about the need for us to be grounded in the truth and not just caught up in cultural trends. We also talked about that we recognize the tendency that Christian people have to, to, to run and to hide or to mislabel what the problem is. And so, hey, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of create this, this counterculture. And in the end, we're going to create like our own little enclave. And we're going to kind of build a moat around our thinking. And we'll just protect ourselves. And we won't let the big bad wolf um, kind of blow our house down. And we say, but that's really not biblical. What, what really, what God calls us to do is not just run and hide, but to actually engage culture. He doesn't say, retreat and hold on. He says, no, I'm sending you out. So we must remain engaged. And then last week, we talked about the fact that, that we really need to trust God in all of this. That as we're engaged and as we're staying grounded, it is easy for us to put our trust in things that are not of God. And that's where major problems have been created by the church itself. When we believe that only when we have power can we actually have influence. That's the way the world looks at it. Preachers love to talk about that God sent his son um, born of this woman and here she is and she's a nobody and he's a nobody. He's just a carpenter and Jesus grows up and here from these small little beginnings he changes the world. And then in the next sentence... Preachers love to talk about, and you know, if our guy doesn't get in, if our girl doesn't get in, in the White House, then everything's going to go because we've got to take control. We've got to have influence. Well, which one is it? Does God work seemingly from the margins, or does God only work from those who are in power? And the real truth is, is that God just works. God works in every situation, and you and I are called to not to give in and to do worldly things. We don't do church in a worldly way, but we trust God in all things. And so what we want to do is, is, is kind of look at that. Um, how, how do we make sure that we're, we're grounded and that we're engaged and that we're trusting? And how do we stay, like, resolved about that? resolved in all of that. And, and Drew, I thought, did a good job this morning, you know, talking about where does that resolve come from? I get the, the desire and even the need for us sometimes to, to need a cheerleader in our lives, right? For those of you that have either have kids or um, it wasn't that long ago that your parents were cheering for you, um, I remember what it's like. Your kids are in baseball and you're wanting more than anything else for them to hit the ball. So you're standing there and you're helping out. Like, it's amazing how helpful you are, right, moms and dads? <laughs> Keep your eye on the ball. 
Oh, thank you. That was, that was helpful. I didn't know to keep my eye on the ball. I've not heard that one before. Keep your eye on the ball, right? And so we're yelling at them, trying to encourage them, thinking, yeah, this would help. Um, two of my sons uh, were swimmers in high school. And so, you know, um, it's swimming. So you just yell, faster! It's like running, right? Faster! Just do this faster! Uh, I, I love to go to the meets, and they literally, like the coaches are just. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, they don't know to kick, <laughs> you know? And, and, and really, you don't see like this, the, them and just, oh, kick, thank you, <laughs> you know? It's like we, we, we say these things over and over and over again, and what's interesting is it not that that cheerleading doesn't have some value, but it can be frustrating while you're trying to hit a ball to have everybody yelling at you, keep your eye on it. <laughs> oh, thank you, Captain Obvious. I, uh, like, it's like, I don't need you to tell me to swim faster. I just, you know, it's, it's, it's more complicated than that. You don't think I'm trying? And I love the fact that what we're reminded about here and what we're calling one another to is not just to try harder. It's, it's not just to be a Christian um, more deeply. Be deeper. You can do it. Be deeper. Read your Bible more. You can do it. Read your Bible more. But what we are called to do, and, and that cheerleading becomes maybe a part of it, right? I mean, I'm grateful for those that are cheering me on. And by the way, I'm not talking about baseball and swimming anymore at all. Like I'm talking about you and I, our walk with Christ. I'm talking about living out our faith from day to day. I, I know that we need those who can encourage us, but encourage us in what? So when we look to Jesus, like we should in the book of Hebrews, and we consider him, consider him so that we stay resolved in what? And there are three things that I want to just challenge us to. I could have picked like 50. But I want to pick three that I think really hit this particular issue that all of us, all of us need to say, I need to go back and make sure that I'm resolved to that. And the first one is this. Um, I, I pray that we as individuals and as a church and be careful just personalizing this. Because as you'll see, all of these, we need each other. Jesus Christ didn't come and save me, and hopefully you'll get to come too, but he came to save us. He will come back together for us, not just me, and not just me and you. He comes back for us. He comes back for his bride. He comes back for his church. So therefore, we are resolved to not compromise what we believe and how we live. We're, we're not going to compromise what we believe and how we live. Now, here is the challenge for us today, and it's been a challenge since the very beginning, but here is our specific challenge that I'm seeing today, is that Christians, individually and corporately, don't seem to care too much about what we believe. That is, as long as we hold on to things like this, we really just need to love. But what does that look like? Like, what does love actually look like? Because sometimes love in the world looks like, well, I'm gonna love my kids and support them no matter what they do. I'm gonna be there for my friends and support them no matter what they do. Which, by the way, they actually don't mean that. 
It's always somewhat of a relative term, but when we talk about this, this profound love that we have for one another, do you realize that that's not really how Jesus describes what it means to be a follower of him? Sure, he tells us to love, but you do realize like we love in a particular way. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18 that you love your brother so much that if you see a brother or a sister who is sinning, then you go to them and you tell them what you're doing is wrong. You see, it's that kind of love. Most people don't like that kind of love. They forget the Matthew 18 picture of Jesus's love. To them, love just equals acceptance. Well, really, if we're honest, it equals us accepting what we both mutually agree upon. And then really, that's not what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is that you and I believe and live the way the Bible teaches us to believe and to live. That we're not here trying to figure it out on our own, but we are here to follow him. That's why we preach the Bible. That is why we submit, me and you, to what the Bible actually teaches us to believe. I think so much of the American mindset, and by that I mean that I am free to choose which things I want to believe and which things I don't want to believe, that I am here to create a, a whole system of belief that I agree with, and when I don't like something, I don't follow it. Do you realize how fundamentally unchristian that kind of assembling like Lego pieces your faith, how unchristian that actually is? To celebrate this most recently, BuzzFeed, great place to find theological truth, okay? BuzzFeed came out with this, I don't know who put this together, but um, hear me, by the way, like I appreciate their heart. I genuinely believe that what this group of individuals tried to do was say, listen, like Christians are getting a bad rap in, in, in the world for all of these things, and I want to show that we're diverse. I want to show that we're, we're more than just this one. I, I believe we are more than one um, kind of stereotypical, one-dimensional way of looking at us. I believe the world does need to hear the real truth about who we are. But in this campaign, this wonderful hashtag, I'm a Christian, but I'm not. And I think it's just telling that the word Jesus was never mentioned in the entire video. Ah, <laughs> I'm a Christian, but I never have to mention the name Jesus. I'm a Christian, but I'm actually gonna celebrate myself, my understanding of myself and who I am. I'm a Christian, but I am going to put my agenda above any agenda that comes from the biblical text. Like, that's not what it means to be a Christian. I'm not saying that there isn't diversity in our midst. Oh, there is great diversity in our midst. I would even say there can be some diversity in terms of what we believe. I'm looking forward to the day when you and I are in heaven. Now, hear what I meant when I said that. Since you and I are in heaven, then we're both in a relationship with Jesus Christ by grace through faith, right? And then you and I get to heaven and I go, hey, Jesus, tell her she was wrong on that one thing she believed. Come on, tell her. And I can't wait when Jesus walks up and says, yeah, I know you don't want to hear it, but Jim was right, right? I promise you. I guarantee I'm so looking forward to that day when you and I, both faithful people who are trusting Jesus with our sin problem, who find peace with God only through the blood of Jesus Christ, and you and I have a different opinion about 
the Left Behind series or something, and we're there, and I'm going, see, tell them that it should be left behind. Tell them, tell them. And Jesus says, yeah, you need to leave that behind. Okay, I can't wait for that moment. And I promise you, I fully expect on many, many occasions, and I don't know how long it's going to take, but one of you, Tara, it'll be you, you'll grab Jesus and you'll say, Jesus, tell Jimmy was wrong. <laughs> tell him. And, and you know what? Jesus will walk up to me and say, hey, Jim, listen, I, I know you tried on this one, but you missed it. You, you missed this one. Now, the good news is you're still here. <laughs> the good news is you're still with me. The good news is you got the most important pieces of the puzzle right. See, there is diversity in terms of what we believe. But listen, the Bible actually is clear that there are facts about, there are truths about God where we don't have room for diversity about who God is in terms of his character and his nature and his purpose that the Bible speaks clear enough for you and I. There is the truth about who Jesus Christ is and the fact that no other name has been given to humanity by which we must be saved. The Bible is clear that his word is trustworthy and true and therefore you and I aren't here just to decide what we wanna do with his word but you and I together must submit to his word and arrange our beliefs around what he has already said. The Bible is already clear that it is not anything that you do and it is nothing I do that earns us love or favor from God in heaven. But it is what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. These things are not up for debate. It is true that the Bible teaches. We can discuss it, but we're not going to vote on it that one day Jesus Christ will come back and there will be a dividing of those who are covered by his blood and those of us who have chosen to do it on our own and he will divide us to the right and to the left and to some of us, I wish, it could, I, wish I could say all of us, by the way it's available to all of us but some of us he will say well done my good and faithful servant and hear me it, it truly hurts when I say and some of us he'll say I have never really knew you because you decided to live another way. You decided to make up your own belief system. You decided to just give in. You decided to follow along. You decided to stand up. Instead of standing up for me, you stood up for yourself. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. But I went to church. But I loved. I know. And Jesus said, but you didn't love me. You loved what I would do for you. you. You loved what I could possibly give you, but you never loved me. You never took your beliefs and submitted them to my truth. That's why the Great Commission teaches that you and I will make disciples and we will teach them to obey everything that Jesus Christ commanded. It's still something I am trying to do. I wanna grow in obedience to who Jesus Christ is and the Bible is my teacher. And we come at this thing together and we say, I'm not here to decide what to believe, those things that I like. What concerns me is when I hear people say things like, yeah, I, I don't, the God that I serve would, would be like this. I don't know if I could love a God like that. Listen, there is a God in the universe. There is a God that exists and he's not asking for your approval. You know that, right? He's not even asking for your opinion. Now hear me, don't, don't get all, oh, he sounds so mean. No, 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 you have no idea. Do, do you know that he sent his son to die for you in your place? 
Do you know that how patient he is with you? How loving, how he does not desire anyone to perish, but wants everyone to come to faith in his son, Jesus Christ, that he might give them eternal life. This is the heart of God. But what we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about the world, what we believe about our identity, what we believe about life is not something that we vote on democratically. It is something that we humbly seek in the scriptures together. And it is something that you and I submit to and we are resolved to not compromise what we believe because I got this one friend and he, I know he's a little bit different, but he is so awesome and I just can't believe that God wouldn't accept him. But I've got this son and, and listen, he's going through some troubles right now and I just can't imagine that God wouldn't And the question I'm just gonna ask as you and I have honest conversations about what this means is are you getting this from like God's word? Are you getting this from what the church has said for thousands of years in terms of who God is? Or are you basically deciding what you wanna believe because it hurts that your friends, it hurts that your family, it hurts that those you care about are choosing to live a way other than the way of God? And by the way, it's not just what we believe, but it's actually how we live. That we will not compromise how we live. And this is why how we live and what we believe actually are two sides of the same coin. Two different sides of the same coin. What we believe shapes how we live. When I believe that I am a redeemed child of God, then I will treat my body and your body like that. When I believe that Jesus died and forgave me for my sins, then when you sin against me, and I believe God has forgiven me, then, listen, I know it's still hard, but it is at least very doable that I can forgive you. That how I treat my wife is shaped by what I believe about who she is as a sister in Christ. That how I remain faithful to my vows are not based upon whether or not I like her or where I'm happy or things seem to be working out. But this is what I believe about truth and about commitment and about what God can do in the midst of this. I love to ask this question when people are struggling with how they live. Do you need the Holy Spirit to continue down the path that you are going? And in many instances... Many of us are choosing the way that we live, not based upon a growing dependence on the Holy Spirit, not based upon what the scriptures are actually saying, but based upon what we want at the moment when we want it. But we are resolved to not compromise what we believe and how we live our lives. And we are gonna line up with a long line of witnesses that went back to the Bible. I'm not gonna give you Bible verses, I'm gonna give you Bible chapters here. Okay, you go back and figure them out. First one I want you to think about for this one here is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus gives some profound teaching about what it means to be a follower of his. He says, if you follow my teachings, it'll be like we sang the song a moment ago, it'll be like you building what you are about on a rock and not on sand. If you follow my teachings about where real happiness and joy comes from, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, um, you will actually find a, a peace and a joy that comes from surprising places. 
That when you understand how broken you are and when you understand that being a follower of me is more than just not committing adultery and not murdering the person you're mad at, but it goes much deeper than that and Jesus cuts to the very core of who we are, the very core of how we think, the very core of how we act, and he says this, guard your heart against lust. It's not just what you do, it's what you think, it's where you are, it's where you're, where you're going, it's what's, what's wrapped up in your head and in your heart, and Jesus says, I want you to give that to me. Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount about what to believe and how to live when he says things like, when you pray and when you give, don't do so to kind of gather people around you. Don't do so that others might be impressed by you. He knows how much we want to be show-offs. And he says, I want you to pray by yourself in your closet, and really what I want you to do is give. And give so that nobody knows. You don't need your name on a building. Give like this. And Jesus, at the very end of the sermon, points out some really important things. He says, hey, by the way, just so you know, the road of people that follow me is very narrow. This is a good reminder for us when we're dealing with culture. Um, I wish, we should probably be more concerned when we see wide roads because Jesus at the end of that sermon says, narrow is the road that finds me and broad is the road that leads to destruction. He then also gives us some pretty profound advice. Listen, it's always wrong to be judgmental. It's always wrong to have a standard for yourself and a different standard for those around you. But you do know that Jesus made some profound statements like, and you will know a tree by its fruit. Wait a second. Don't judge me. Jesus said, make right judgments. Jesus actually said, you will know a tree by its fruit. And that's how we can know that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how we can know that we are walking faithfully with God. That's how we can know that those that we are concerned about are or are not walking faithfully with God. You will know a tree by its fruit. How we live and what we believe matters. And we need to be resolved to stay on task. Another great chapter for you to look at is Ephesians 6. In Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul talks about us collectively as one body, as one group of people faithfully standing up to the truth, faithfully standing up in the world. And what we're not doing is, is we're not fighting like the world fights. The world doesn't need more people acting like itself. It needs people who are engaging the world in counter-cultural ways with the spirit of truth, with the sword of the spirit, with feet that are being prepared with the readiness of the gospel, with the belt of truth. This is how we engage, because why? Our enemy is not other people. Those are the people that we are called to be witnesses to. We don't fight others. We speak the truth to them in love that they can find the same peace that you and I have with God. But we are resolved that we are not going to compromise what we believe and how we live our lives. There's a famous book that came out a couple of years ago um, called Velvet Elvis. 
And in this book, this church leader decided that what he wanted to do was kind of reshape how we look at the Bible or at theology, at these fundamental truths. And I'm just telling you, you you need to, as you're reading these books, even when they're written by pastors, should I ever write a book, please hold it up to careful, loving, but real scrutiny. And in this book, this author went on to say, listen, there, there, there's an old way of looking at biblical truth. It's, it's like they're, they're bricks, like they're big stones that are cemented together, like a wall, like a foundation for a building. And that is how, traditionally, the church has looked at theology, truths about God and Jesus, and salvation and sin. And the problem is, is that's not the right way to look at it. That the Bible isn't these rocks and bricks, but that just sounds so boring. They're more like springs. Like on a trampoline. Who doesn't love a trampoline? Who doesn't love jumping up and down on a trampoline? And this is how we need to look at theology. They're flexible. They're pliable. They're playful. They're enjoyable. And I'm reading this at first glance and going, I kind of like that. Who doesn't like springs? I love springs. I can just kind of, oh yeah, this is great. This is fun. And the more I read his stuff, I realized that there were certain things he didn't want to like spring around on. Like there were certain truths he was actually pretty hard hitting. Hey, um, by the way, um, even the fact that the Bible should be read as a spring seemed like he was treating it like a brick. And I began to realize this is kind of a like a bad way to build a, like a building. How many are glad that like the house that you're on is not built on springs? Like trampolines are great to play on. I just don't know if I want my roads built out of them. A bridge of springs. <laughs> Even the analogy itself began to quickly break down and I realized that what he wanted was when he wanted to let love win and decide that I don't like this idea about hell, he called that, by the way, a spring. Hell's a spring. Now, now, us loving each other without really holding each other to something, now that's a brick. And I just realized, wow, there's so many people that I know, young and old, that are getting caught up, getting absolutely caught up not in what the Bible has taught about foundational truths and not of what it means to actually live in consistency with how the church has always lived, but into fads and trends. And I pray that you find the joy of living on a foundation that is strong and secure. Not only are we resolved to not compromise in what we believe and how we live, but we are resolved to encourage and strengthen our witness as an alternative community an alternative community that is built on grace and truth. I believe the world needs an alternative community. Back in the day, one of the shows that I absolutely loved was Cheers. Raise your hand if you grew up on Cheers. Raise your hand. Yeah. We want to go to a place where everybody knows our... And I mean, I just, I thought, these are guys I'd like to hang out with. These guys, they are funny. Every time Norm walks in, Norm, he's got a great line, Right? This is the kind of, and then before I actually realized this, I mean, um, what's interesting is, is I don't know how many years that show existed, but none of them ever grew up. Like, they just remained as dysfunctional. It's like when dysfunction hangs out with dysfunction, you get more dysfunction. Funny to laugh at. Don't know if I really want to live there. 
So, so they changed it up. I mean, this is what I love about Hollywood. It really knows how to kind of change things up. So instead, they found six friends, put them in New York, <laughs> and showed you what healthy relationships look like. <laughs> and listen, like I was drawn into that. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I just, I love the idea of us being friends and hanging out and being there and, hey, a coffee shop, that's fun. Who doesn't like a coffee shop? And they're there for each other and they're not judging one another and they're just kind of living dysfunctional lives. And from season one to the end, it just, it never really, truly, no one ever went anywhere. So I was really glad that Seinfeld came along and said, we're going to do it different. Now there are people who matured and grew in their understanding of the world. So grateful for the office. Are you not grateful for the office? Where in the end, it's not just people celebrating their dysfunction, but it is truly people growing up in every ask. No. No. Think about it. And I would say that many of us model our lives and our marriages after the brokenness and the dysfunction, and I believe what the world needs are not a place where everybody knows your name, although I get what they're saying, and not six friends that are always there for each other no matter what, and it's not the dysfunctional group of four or this office place where we just stay the same, but the world needs an alternative way of living where grace and truth actually matter where in the end we are unbelievably gracious with one another, where there is no background, there is no sin that cannot be loved through, forgiven, and restored from. That in the end our arms are wide open where we do know your name and we care about you and we're not exclusive and we don't have this, you need to become just more like us in these stereotypical ways, but more like us in that we are all broken and repentant sinners who love Jesus Christ and are submitting to him and becoming more like him every day and every week and every month. And we offer this alternative kind of community where we have the guts and the desire to speak the truth to one another in love. And I can't let you stay there. I can't let you continue to believe that because it's wrong and it is hurting your relationship with God. It's hurting your relationship with each other. That when marriages are breaking apart, we love you enough that this is still a safe place for you to be, but we're gonna call you to love your husband right and to love your wife properly and we're going to come alongside one another and say, listen, we care enough about God and about our mission that we're gonna raise our children so that they love the Lord. And we're not going to accept it when kids do whatever they want, but we're gonna hold them responsible to these things because we love them. And we're there when they fall, and we're there when they break. Grace and truth, grace and truth, these are not opposites. And what the world knows are places where they would call it grace, it's really not, because there's nothing redeeming in it. It's just shallow relationships. And not a truth that we make up on our own, but a truth that we find in Jesus Christ. And we are resolved to strengthen and encourage one another in this kind of living under grace and truth. First Thessalonians chapter two is a great chapter to look at. 
In that chapter, the Apostle Paul says this, and I've I've tried to use this as a verse that really kind of speaks powerfully to me. The Apostle Paul says, and I loved you so much that I shared not only the gospel with you, but my very life as well. See, that's grace and truth lived out. See, that kind of community, the world does not know. The world knows how. The church can pontificate, can, can just speak truth to it, But what we are called is to engage at the most foundational, at the most intimate level, relationally, so that they can see what it looks like for us to live that out. First Peter chapter two is another great text where Peter calls us to be holy. It just breaks my heart every time I I recognize that the church in many of our sexual practices and many many of the ways that we uh, treat our families and, and kind of live out in terms of our marriages in many ways is not very different from the world. And yet Peter seems to describe us as a royal priesthood, as a, a holy nation. And we're called to live that way, and it's good for us, and I'm challenging us today. I'm not just speaking to you, but I'm speaking to all of us that we are resolved to encourage and strengthen one another so that we can create an alternative way of living where it's not just six dysfunctional friends. We're not just hanging out in a bar and saying, how are you? But we're calling each other to become more like Jesus Christ, episode after episode, season after season. Amen? And lastly, we are resolved to submit to the Spirit's direction as we share our lives and the gospel. This this is the difference, is that instead of running away or instead of somehow misunderstanding what the Holy Spirit is wanting, we are becoming more responsive to the Spirit. That in the end, individually and corporately, you and I are more aware of the Spirit moving, at the Spirit at work in our lives, that we look at the places where we look, we look at those intimate relationships that we are in the middle of, that we are involved in, and say, this is happening for a reason, and the Holy Spirit has provided this opportunity and will give me the strength to succeed here. The Holy Spirit will give me the strength to be faithful right here where I am. And I'm not just blindly going through life. And I'm not just going through life trying to build my own kingdom for my own purposes and my own enjoyment. But the Spirit has brought me here for this reason, for this very time. Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas are set apart from a church context. And the Holy Spirit says, send them out. I'm gonna use them in this way. I love being reminded about what we do in Uganda and what we do in, we're about to go to Haiti. We're going back to Uganda. We're going to Mexico in a little while. And I love the fact that we're also on the OSU campus and that we're helping out here in Stillwater, that it doesn't matter where we are, we are being directed by the Holy Spirit. And what makes us different is not that we are trying harder, but that we are growing in our discernment of what the Holy Spirit is doing in my life. Like, are you aware what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life and how he is conforming you into the image of Jesus? Do you still look at the Holy Spirit? I don't know if he wants me to move to Ohio. You know, that's how the Bible primarily describes it. And by the way, if he wants you to go to Ohio, he'll get you there. But on a daily basis, recognizing what the Holy Spirit is doing and how it is speaking and how it is challenging. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the basic day-by-day things that I struggle with the most. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is getting ready to say goodbye. 
He thinks he's gonna die. He's on his way to Jerusalem and he gathers those who are closest to him. And here's what he says. Preparing for the fact for you that to be resolved in following the Spirit sometimes puts us in difficult places. And the Apostle Paul says, "Um, the Spirit is leading me to Jerusalem and I do know this, that everywhere I go, the Spirit reminds me that trouble and hardships awake. So don't think that when the Holy Spirit is leading you that it's just going to be to greener pastures. Nope, sometimes it's onto a battlefield. Many times it's onto a battlefield. He just promises to give you the strength while you're there. And the Apostle Paul ends that conversation with the elders by saying this. And I do not consider my life worth anything other than the fact that I might um, be faithful to the very end of the task that Jesus Christ has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. This is our task, brothers and sisters in Christ, is to be resolved that in our marriages and in our families and in our communities and in our workplace, that you and I are resolved to discern and to be obedient to the Spirit's direction as we live out our lives and as we share the gospel with those around us. And we're not alone. The church has always been doing this. I'm not giving you a challenge that God hasn't already been faithful with from the beginning of time. God was faithful to Abraham as he led him. God was faithful to David on the field. God was faithful to his prophets, Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah. God has always been faithful. I guess the question that you and I get to ask and then answer with our lives is will we Because the history of God's people is full of examples of men and women who have resolved to hold fast to Jesus despite their pressure that they felt by their respective cultures. After finding the lost book of the law, King Josiah immediately set out to reform the nation of Israel. Stephen boldly preached to the religious powers of his day, becoming in the process the first Christian killed for his faith. In the second century, Justin Martyr said, you can kill us, but you cannot do any real harm to us. These words encapsulate and the resolve that many in the early church, including people like Perpetua and Polycarp, John Chrysostom stood up against the rampant materialism in the church and in the culture around him. His example was followed by others in the medieval church, many like Peter Valdo and Catherine of Siena. John Huss said this, it is better to die well than to live badly. His resolve was apparent as he sung hymns while being burned at the stake. During the 20th century at the rise of theological liberalism, B.B. Warfield remained grounded in the truths of scripture. Dietrich Bonhoeffer stood against the evils of Nazi Germany in the 1940s and he famously said, when Christ calls a man, he calls him to come and die. In the wake of World War II, C.S. Lewis defended the sovereignty and the goodness of God amidst growing skepticism. And the question for us today is this, with such a great cloud of witnesses, will we too resolve to run with endurance the race that is before us? Will you and I be faithful? Because we both know that God will be faithful. Will you and I? I pray the answer is yes, by the grace of God.